Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could please stand for our opening prayer. The Lord be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Let us pray. I'm going to offer today the prayer that you'll find in the back of the holy card that I put out there for everybody. And you may pray it along with me if you choose. It's a prayer for the ordinariates uh, and the quick erection of an ordinariate here in the United States. Eternal Father, we place before you the project of forming the personal ordinariates for Anglicans seeking full communion with the Catholic Church. We thank you for this initiative of Pope Benedict XVI. And we ask that through the Holy Spirit, the ordinariates may become families of charity, peace, and the service of the poor, centers for Christian unity and reconciliation, communities that welcome and evangelize, teaching the faith in all its fullness, and bring the liturgy and sacraments with prayerful reverence, and maintaining a distinctive patrimony of Christian faith and culture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Father. Your fall schedule is out, the roots of modernism. Now, how is that different from Father Scalia's talk on the errors of modernism? This is a major heresy, which is kind of like the heresy to end all heresies. And when it goes after the very nature of truth itself, it's something obviously you can't deal with in 45 minutes. My goal with Father Scalia was to kind of whet your appetite a little bit. And now Dr. Marshner, who's going to be publishing a book on modernism, will be speaking in three parts and going into the background, the roots, the philosophical principles that underlay this problem. So I encourage you to come to that, and that will be at uh, St. Michael's in Annandale. Um, following that, Dr. Van Slyke will be coming to speak for the Institute for the first time on the Mass. We'll have four programs on the Mass, two with Dr. Van Slyke and two with Father Pekorski. This is all in preparation, of course, for the translation of the Roman Missal, the new translation of the Roman Missal, because it's nice to know what the new translation says. But I want you to be much better equipped to know the history of the liturgy, its background, the history of why we're even dealing with the translation today. And so we're going to be looking at a little bit of the history all the way going back. We've already done our program on Martin Luther and the Mass. And now we're going to be looking at the uh, liturgical developments in the Roman Church from the mid-1800s forward to Vatican II, a movement that was at the root of or was pushing for Vatican II to deal with the liturgy, which it did. That's why the leading document of Vatican II is on the liturgy. It's a movement that started back in the 1800s, and you need to be equipped with that to realize also what took place after Vatican II and then why we're, we have a new translation coming out. And so those programs are going to be there for your formation. Our speaker tonight is a former minister of the Episcopal Church and a convert to the Catholic Church. He was ordained to the priesthood in 2007 in service to the diocese of Scranton. 
Pennsylvania. He serves as chaplain of the Anglican Youth Society, a Catholic organization dedicated to the increasing awareness of the apostolic constitution of Pope Benedict XVI, Anglicanorum Cetibus. His articles have been published in the Anglican Embers, This Rock, and Catholic Men's Quarterly. He has spoken across the United States about the work of the St. Thomas More Society. Please join me in welcoming Father Eric Bergman. I thank you. I thank Dean Canazzo actually for inviting me. We met at the prayer breakfast uh, only a few months ago. And uh, I also thank, of course, Bishop Laverde for giving me permission to come here. Tomorrow night, I'm going to celebrate a Mass, for which I got permission from Bishop Laverde as well, at Holy Spirit Church in Annandale. It is an Anglican use of the Roman Rite Mass. If you've never experienced this liturgy, it is a beautiful liturgy. We're going to a requiem for the victims of the September 11th terrorist attacks. So uh, if you are able to make it, we'd love to have you. You're more than, uh, you're warmly, warmly invited. And uh, uh, you'll have plenty of time to get here. We'll have the Mass at 5. Our Masses generally take about an hour and 15 minutes, so we'll be done at 6.15, this little reception afterwards. And then we're going to be uh, coming over. I also wanted to uh, tell you about the prayer card and from the response I got during the prayer, it's, in, it's clear that many of you picked them up. So thank you for that. And also, now this is something I'm going to be talking a lot about more tomorrow, but I put copies of the Apostolic Constitution back there as well. So uh, if you want to do some light reading uh, (laughs) in preparation for tomorrow, you can take this home with you. Now I'm glad to be back in Virginia. I went to school actually in your commonwealth. Uh, My mother grew up across the river in Maryland, she was actually uh, went to high school in PG County and graduated from Oxon Hill in 1962. So that gives you an idea of how old I am. I bring you greetings from the Scranton Diocese, especially the members of the St. Thomas More Society and Bishop Nambera. Now, the title of the talk that I had uh, devised for tonight was "Trailblazers on the Road to Hell and Back," and that isn't. <laughs> That is not the title that was advertised because I was too late uh, in, getting it, in getting it. But uh, uh, The Roots of Immorality will do us well. Uh, Lambeth, 1930, and The Degradation of Western Civilization. Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk to you about Lambeth Conference, 1930, what led to it, what happened at it, the aftermath of it, and finally, a little bit about the silver lining that has come to the Catholic Church as a result of it. My purpose is to show the Lambeth Conference in 1930 to be the beginning of the acceleration of the degradation of Western civilization. Clearly, it is not the beginning of the degradation under which we're living. It is, however, the beginning of the acceleration. And so, as I begin, I have to start with the definition. What is the Lambeth Conference? The Lambeth Conference is the decennial gathering of Anglican bishops from all over the world at Lambeth Palace in England. They are invited by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury is not like a pope. He's really a first among equals. And the Archbishop of Canterbury invites all the bishops, and they decide, ultimately, on a worldwide basis, questions of doctrine and discipline. And interestingly, the questions that they decide are not binding, and so very often we see things ignored 
that were decided at Lambeth Conference by some bishops in different parts of the Anglican Communion. But the idea is for the Anglican Communion to express its mind on a host of issues through the Lambeth Conference. And they've been happening since the 1860s. And the one that we're going to talk about tonight happened in 1930. What is the significance of the year 1930? We have to remember that we are in the aftermath, really, of World War II, or rather, World War I. We think about the Roaring Twenties in this country and Prohibition. There was a degradation of the culture during what was called the Roaring Twenties in the, in the United States, but in other places, there was a, a similar degradation in, in places like uh, Germany and uh, England. At the beginning, and I'm going to get in more into about exactly what characterized that degradation in the 20s. But at the beginning of the Great Depression, uh, that is, the Great Depression began in 1929, we see economic uncertainty and, and with the rise of people like Mussolini and only three years later Hitler, we see a divinization of the state. And already Stalin had been in power for seven years in the Soviet Union, that is, making the state the ultimate authority about all matters, public and private. Now we're in the interwar period uh, before the barbarities of World War II and before the dissolution of the British Empire. So the pronouncements that a group of Anglican bishops made in 1930 were far more significant than pronouncements made by Anglican bishops today. Remember that the British had, in the previous century, in the 19th century, the 1800s, had conquered one-third of the globe, so that fully in 1930, one-third of the world's people were subjects of the King of England. Incredible. What preceded Lambeth? 22 years before Lambeth 1930, there was Lambeth 1908, and at that conference, if you look at the, you can look them up on the internet, just go to the official website of the Lambeth Conference, you can see that they deplored the decline in priestly vocations in the churches of the Anglican Communion. And they made a call, this is in 1908, remember they have married clergy, they have a call to family and schools to foster vocations to the priesthood in the Anglican Communion. They also registered the alarm of the growing practice of the artificial restriction of the family. What they were talking about was contraception, but they did not use that word. But they registered alarm, this is in 1908, about the growing practice of the artificial restriction of the family. The context was the decline of the birth rate in Britain of 50% over the previous 100 years. The birth rate in Britain had declined from 1800 to 1900 from seven children per family to about 3.5. So the birth rate had literally been cut in half. And so the Anglican bishops saw this trend of the artificial limitation of the size of the family as demoralizing to character and, this is important, hostile to the national welfare. They saw the artificial restriction of the size of the family as hostile to the national welfare. In 1920, Lambeth offered a similar warning. 
So we see the Anglican bishops in 1908 and in 1920 steadfastly against the practice of artificial contraception. In 1920, Lambeth offered a similar warning that contraception was a threat to the race. They used a different word in 1920, a threat to the race. They affirmed that marriage is for making children, children who are not a burden, but a blessing and a gift. It also commended, in 1920, Lambeth commended to Christians thoughtful and deliberate self-control. Now remember, the push for contraception had begun already, but the Anglican bishop's answer was, we don't need contraception or birth control, no births and no control. What we need is thoughtful and deliberate self-control. Now immediately before and after this pronouncement, Margaret Sanger had began opening her network of birth, what she called birth control clinics, and Marie Stopes did the same thing in England. So you had two campaigners for the legalization of contraception, one in England and one in America, opening uh, at the time uh, what were illegal clinics, dispensing to people contraceptive devices and also disseminating information about contraception. So before I get to the conference itself, I still have to tell you a little bit about the lead up to 1930, so I have to talk to you about Planned Parenthood. I have to talk to you about the origins of uh, what was then called the population control movement. And it had eugenic, eugenic, which meant good birth, had eugenic origins. The idea was that poverty and crime proceed from bad breeding. Now these are animal terms, and so I don't mean ever to make them refer to procreation, which is how we come to be when man and woman cooperate with God and a baby is the result. So I, when I say these words breeding, I'm saying it in quotes. I'm not, these are not my words. These are the words of the eugenicists. They said that poverty and crime proceed from bad breeding, and the source of most of poverty and crime is the inferior brown people. When they said the inferior brown people, they meant anybody from southern Europe. They didn't, uh, uh, you know, in America we tend to call people white and black or Hispanic and Asian and so forth. But for the eugenicists, anybody basically south of Switzerland was inferior. Uh, uh, the Greeks, the Italians, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, the Turks, and then, of course, obviously anything south of that. So they had uh, no time for anybody other than the northern Europeans. The philosophy was simply this. If we, through contraception, eliminate poor people and criminals, poverty and crime will cease. There's a total denial, obviously, of the nature of uh, human sin. But the idea was, get rid of poor people, there'll be no poverty. Get rid of the criminals, and there'll be no crime. Now, it's an obvious contradiction to the words of Jesus, who said, the poor you will always have with you. It also indicates a lack of trust in God. And obviously they do not see people as a gift and a blessing, as the solution to the world's problems of poverty and crime. They see them not as a resource, but as a curse. So uh, they sold this bag of goods with scare tactics about overpopulation. Remember Thomas Malthus, who was an Anglican clergyman as well. 
had preached uh, more than 100 years before the eugenics, eugenicists of the 1920s. Thomas Malthus had been preaching overpopulation, and indeed the eugenicists preached this as well. Now, to give you an idea of how demonic, how evil the eugenics movement was, I'm going to read to you three quotes. The first coming from Margaret Sanger in a letter that she wrote to Clarence Gamble in 1939. And you begin to understand the racist nature of the eugenics movement. This is a direct quote from a letter that she wrote. We do not want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten that idea out if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. She was talking about co-opting the churches to help preach this idea of uh, racial purity. Now, you say, oh, that's, that's really out of date. That's like ancient history. Margaret Sanger in 1939. Well, I'm going to read you a, a quote from President Nixon. And I was alive when he said this, and I'm not that old, I don't think. Uh, but President Nixon uh, was recorded saying this on tape 697-29 in 1972. I think a majority of people in Michigan are for abortion. Certainly in Michigan they will vote for it because they think that what's going to be aborted generally are the little black bastards. That's our president. And then, if you think that that's still too far long, Father Bergman, you actually are old, I'm going to give you a, a, a quote from Ruth Bader Ginsburg that she gave in an interview to the New York Times in 2009. Frankly, I had thought that at the time Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth, and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. So the eugenic orientation, the eugenic background to Planned Parenthood is still alive and well. It has infected even one of our Supreme Court justices. With that, understanding the motivations and the nature of the eugenic and population control movement, the people who pushed birth control as a means to purify the human race, we can talk about what happened at Lambeth 1930. The idea of contraception as eugenic and as racist was rejected by the bishops at Lambeth in 1930. The way it was sold to them was as a means to fight poverty and crime. And though this was racist, it was seductive. By great majority, the bishops reversed themselves from the stance they took in 1908 and 1920, which makes one wonder whether the bishops also thought the Holy Spirit was schizophrenic, that they could have a change so radical in such a short amount of time. While opening the door to contraception, I want you to note that it was a very thin opening, at least from their perspective. Uh, at the time, people who knew what was happening said this isn't a uh, small opening at all. But I want to read to you uh, what, they, what they actually said in 1930. Where there is clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, the method must be decided on Christian principles. This is Resolution 15. The primary and obvious method is complete abstinence from intercourse, as far as may be necessary, in a life of discipline and self-control lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, they're commending self-control to people. Nevertheless, 
in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. The conference records its strong condemnation of the use of any methods of conception control from motives of selfishness, luxury, or mere convenience. So within the Lambeth Conference, they say, yeah, you can use contraception, but we're going to condemn, and I didn't read this, this was in other resolutions, we're going to condemn the inequality of the sexes, we will condemn the unchastity of persons, we condemn adultery, they also condemn divorce and uh, the instability to relationships that might result from contraception, they condemn sex for sex's sake, selfishness, abortion, eugenics, they actually explicitly condemned eugenics, and they called for the restricted use of contraception, rather that the government would restrict the use of contraception. They actually called on governments to pass laws so that contraceptive use would be restricted, and they also called on governments to ban ads for contraceptive devices. Incredible. They thought they were just opening the door a little bit. The irony of the steps taken to mitigate the harm that they foresaw as a result of what they saw as a baby step is interesting. They give the devil an inch and invariably he takes a mile. It took 75 years to get from blessing contraception to blessing sodomy. I'm going to uh, talk more about that in a second. What I think that we should look at now is how did the Catholic Church answer? How did the Catholic Church answer the Lambeth Conference of 1930. Pope Pius XI wrote the encyclical Casti Canubi, and you might not ever have read that, but I'll tell you what he said. In that encyclical, he articulated the problems with the contraceptive mentality. The contraceptive mentality views children as a threat, as a burden, not as a blessing. Secondly, contraception sets men and women against each other so that they are in competition with one another to avoid parenthood rather than complementing one another and welcoming the gift of human life. From this competition, we have received a vocabulary of quote-unquote safe sex. What is safe sex? That which doesn't result in conception. And the idea of using protection within the context of marital relations. Now, of course, this is all ridiculous because we don't protect ourselves from our spouses, we're supposed to protect ourselves from our enemies. And as we're making this talk on the weekend of the 10th anniversary of September 11th, this is something that all of us ought to intuitively understand. We don't protect ourselves from our lovers. We don't protect ourselves from the people with whom we are most intimate. We're supposed to protect ourselves from those who want to kill us. He also said that contraception encourages vice as pleasure is made primary and the obligations of the marital act are set aside. Now, there was a follow-up to Casta Canubi, and that came uh, within the lifetime of many people here, uh, two years before I was born, uh, in, in uh, Humana Vitae. On July the 25th, 1968, the feast of St. James, Paul VI, our late Holy Father, issued Humana Vitae, and he reiterated the teaching of Pius XI from Casta Canubi. But he also offered something new. He offered predictions. And if you are able to get your hands on a copy of Humana Vitae, you'll see the predictions in section 17. He talked 
first about the general lowering of morality. He said that if contraceptive practices were to become widespread, and believe it or not, in 1968, they weren't. All right? So this is, we're talking about 43 years ago. He said, if contraceptive practices were to become widespread, we would see a general lowering of morality. Adultery, divorce, unwed mothers, cohabitation, and of course the acceptance of perversion. Second, he said women would be viewed as mere objects. Women would come to be seen not as the beloved complement to the man, but as mere objects who were put on earth for man's selfish gratification. And who can doubt that this has indeed come true? Remember that uh, uh, all we have to do is go through the store and uh, Cosmopolitan, which is ostensibly a magazine for women, is so obscene they have to put the plastic barrier in front of it so that your kids can't see it. Uh, and we see the, the massive growth in pornography. It's the, the biggest industry right now on the internet is porn. All about the objectification of women. Third, he said that if the practice of contraception became widespread, people would treat their bodies as if they could do whatever they wanted with them. And what we see since 1968 is a massive growth in the number of sterilizations. It's actually the, the most common form of contraception in the United States is sterilization, self-mutilation, where the fallopian tubes in the woman are cut or on the part of the man, the vast deferens are cut. Uh, we see a growth, and this is only really in the last 20 years, a massive growth in the number of people having tattoos, the trend of people piercing themselves, the steroid controversy in uh, Major League Baseball, the massive growth in the plastic surgery, and also, of course, what are called, quote-unquote, reproductive technologies. And, of course, humans don't reproduce, they procreate, but uh, this is the words, of course, people who are using these, quote-unquote, technologies. So, fourth, he said, if the practice of contraception became widespread, governments would impose contraceptive practices on their populations. They would use contraceptive practices, mandate them, as a means to control the population. And indeed, it took only 11 years for this to happen in China. 1968, Humana Vitae came out. 1979, China issued their one-child policy of coerced sterilizations and coerced abortions. All of Paul VI's predictions that he made in Section 17 of Humana Vitae have come true. And our government has, in fact, followed the populace's lead in the United States with regard to the use of contraception. Now, contraception was not as widespread in 1968 as it is now, uh, but it was used by at least about, we don't know for sure because surveys weren't done, about 50% of the population at least were using contraception of one form or another. And in 1965, uh, in the Supreme Court decision Griswold versus Connecticut, all the remaining contraceptive laws, the laws against contraception in the United States were overturned by the Supreme Court. Second, after contraceptive laws were thrown out and we were uh, comfortable with objectifying women, in the case of Red Rip versus New York, in 1967, pornography was made legal. If you wondered when did pornography in this country become legal, it was 1967. And then several decisions since that uh, we've seen the proliferation of it. 1972, Eisenstadt versus Baird, the Supreme Court legalized contraception for women who were single. And indeed, 1973, Roe v. Wade, abortion always 
is the handmaid of contraception. It took only eight years for the Supreme Court from 1965 to 1973. First they legalized contraception, then they legalized abortion. And then finally, uh, 30 years later, in Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the Supreme Court threw out all the remaining laws that had outlawed sodomy. So, uh, 1965 uh, to 2003, less than 40 years, went from acceptance of contraception to the legal acceptance of sodomitical relations. Clearly, the sexual relations were now thought of as the means to benefit first the individual, whatever the cost might be to society. Why were all those laws passed in the first place? Because people years ago understood that sexual relations weren't just for the individual, they were for everyone around us too. How did the acceptance of contraception lead to the acceptance of sodomy? That is not a connection that many people can make, and so I'm going to draw the line for you. Now, historically, after the Anglican Communion accepted contraception in 1930, all of the other Protestant denominations, all of the mainline Protestant denominations soon followed. In fact, the National Federation of Churches, which was the precursor to the National Council of Churches, accepted contraception in 1931. So it only took the other Protestants one more year. The last holdout in terms of mainline Protestants were the Missouri Synod, who accepted contraceptive practices and sterilization in 1981. So basically 50 years after the Anglicans accepted it, all of the other Protestants had accepted it. What all of them failed to see, and this is the connection, the blessing of relations within marriage, which are infecund, that is, unable to issue in children, the blessing of relations within marriage, which are intentionally infecund, leads inexorably to the blessing of sexual relations, which are inherently infecund. If you bless people using contraception, you have no more ground to stand on to tell people whose relations are inherently infecund that they're doing something wrong. Because throwing self-control out the window, throwing the idea that our sexual relations are a gift to the community, when we throw that out the window, when sex is just for ourselves, what choice do we have but to turn around and bless what anyone else wants to do sexually? It is the separation of the unitive aspect of sexual relations from the procreative aspect of sexual relations. Once we separate those two, once we act as if we can have unity without procreation, what we have is a disaster, and I'm going to get into exactly how that disaster has been manifested on us socially. It has been manifested on us socially through what I call the theology of androgyny. You remember, uh, maybe 20 years ago, anybody here watched Saturday Night Live? I was in college and I watched it. 
And there was a skit about a lady named Pat, and no one could tell whether she was a girl or a boy, right? It was a, a, a lesson on androgyny, about sexlessness. And the theology of androgyny is the uh, child of the widespread use of contraception. Once we admit sexual license, once we embrace sexual license, then the theology of androgyny comes quickly behind. And so I'm going to go over a short survey of changes in the Episcopal Church in the United States of America since 1930. It's now called TEC, the Episcopal Church. But uh, when I was a part of it, when I was an Episcopal minister, I was part of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America. So, 28 years, only 28 years after Lambeth 1930, when the Anglican bishops of the world accepted contraception. By 1958, at Lambeth 1958, they declared that contraception was a right. In only 28 years, the Anglicans went from accepting contraception to declaring that people had a right to family planning. The implication being that motherhood is an impediment to female empowerment. The idea is that somehow motherhood holds women back from reaching full equality. Just nine years later, the Episcopal Church USA at their general convention in 1967 began to advocate for the repeal of the nation's abortion laws. Note that this is six years before the abortion laws were actually overturned by the Supreme Court. The Episcopal Church had begun advocating for the legalization of abortion in 1967. And men, having abdicated their roles as the protector of the vulnerable, they thus abdicated their role as servant leaders also. Women's ordination came to the Episcopal Church in 1976, and men were absolved of their obligation to lay down their lives for the vulnerable. Who is the priest but he who stands in the place of Jesus Christ? and is willing to lay down his life in order that the sheep may live. This is supposed to be the role of your father in Christ, of every individual's father in Christ. His role is to lay down his life in order that you might live. And when the people of the Episcopal Church chose to bless women's ordination, it was simply the next logical step in the abdication of the male role. They'd already thrown the baby out the window. Why not then simply choose not to fulfill the role of protector of all of the vulnerable and the role of being the servant leader who, like Jesus, lays down his life for the sheep? What we have since that time is the interchangeability of the sexes. This change, this embrace of women's ordination represented for its advocates the interchangeability of men and women. In a world view in which there is no essential difference between men and women and their roles, the union of people of the same sex is the next logical step. If sex is not for making babies, if sex is not primarily for making babies, and there's no difference, essentially, between a man and a woman, and between a man's role and a woman's role, then what's the big deal about same-sex relations? There is no big deal. If you accept that ide ideology, if you accept the theology of androgyny, then one must 
accept the blessing of same-sex unions. And indeed, this came to the Episcopal Church informally in 2003 with the election of the first openly homosexual bishop in the history of the Episcopal Church, and formally in 2009 with the introduction in the Episcopal Church of same-sex blessing ceremonies. Having traced for you how we went from embracing contraception in 1930 to embracing sodomy in 2003, just 73 years, less than the average lifespan of most men and women, indeed the average, what does this theology of androgyny then represent? And we remember another quote of Jesus, you shall know them by their fruits. When we understand contraception as the refusal of men and women to complement each other and instead to live in competition, because this is what people who use contraception do, they see their spouse as a potential threat because either, one, she might get pregnant, or two, he might impregnate me. When we see couples refusing to live complementary lives and instead live in competition, our inheritance is the battle of the sexes. And what has been the fruit of the battle of the sexes? Men and women set against each other. A higher divorce rate first. In 1950, the divorce rate was 20%. Today, it's 50. Second, there are more out-of-wedlock births as well. In 1960, less than 1 in 10 children was born out of wedlock. Today, 4 in 10 are. 4 of every 10 children is born to unmarried parents. And of course, with unmarried people having children, there's the attendant adjudication that has to take place figure out who's going to pay the support, who's going to get custody, etc., etc. Third, since men and women have been set against each other through the use of contraception, we see more sexually transmitted diseases. In 1960, there were seven. There are 24 today. Diseases that didn't exist in 1960. Fourth, there are more abortions. In the first year of legalized abortion, there were 700,000 abortions. That's 1973 in this country. Today, there are about 1.2 million per year. 70%, between 67 and 70% of them are coerced. The women who receive the abortions report saying that they experience some form of coercion 67 to 70% of the time. Fifth, there are higher rates of cervical and breast cancer. The federal government finally admitted two years ago that birth control pills are carcinogen on the same level as asbestos. They finally admitted two years ago, it hasn't made them ban it, right? But they admitted that they are a very serious carcinogen. You wonder why so many women have been diagnosed with breast cancer so recently why is there the Susan G. Komen race for the cure and so forth? A lot of it has to do with the fact that so many uh, women have been taking these cancer pills for so long. Sixth, higher rates of exploitation. Years ago, the uh, use of women for immoral purposes was called the white slave trade. Well, now it isn't just white women. It's women from all over the world being exploited at a rate far higher than was the case 100 years ago, or 50 years ago. 
Seventh, higher rates of infidelity. More people now cheat on their spouses, even as fewer people get married. Eighth, economic inequality. Contraception acts as a way when men and women are set against each other, women always lose. And economically is one of the main indicators that in divorce, when couples divorce, women always end up poor. Not always, obviously, there's exceptions to the rule. But on average, women end up poorer economically than the man. Ninth, the increase in the number of women who describe themselves as unhappy. If we look at the surveys have been done on this for the last five decades, and today more women describe themselves as unhappy than did 50 years ago. And the most frightening of all the bad fruits, a dramatic tenth, a dramatic drop in the birth rate. In 1960, the birth rate in the United States was 3.7 per woman per lifetime. 3.7 children per woman per lifetime. Today, that rate is less than 2.1. It's about 2.08. We aren't even replacing ourselves. And among the native-born, it's less than 2. The only reason we have a, a birth rate above 2 is because of all of our Hispanic immigrants. I should tell you that my wife is Colombian. Uh, now, I don't, I didn't, when I decided to have a large family, it had nothing to do with her being Colombian. But... but uh, she is helping that rate. Uh, androgyny means forgetting. Forgetting of motherhood and fatherhood. And when we forget motherhood and fatherhood, when we forget our roles as males and females that were given to us by God, we forget to have children. All of the fruits of contraception are precisely the opposite of what the proponents of contraception in the 1920s promised. Everything they promised was wrong. Everything Paul VI predicted is right. They promised us less crime, we have more of it. They promised us less poverty, we have more of it. They promised us a purer race. <laughs> that was a bunch of garbage to begin with. The cost for us is staggering. In terms of vocations to the priesthood and religious life, we see in the Catholic Church an inability to fulfill the roles associated with clergy and religious. Many of you here are cradle Catholics, and you can remember when you were taught by nuns, and when the average parish had three or four priests. Why don't we have that same number of vocations? Well, part of the reason is we just don't have the same number of people. In terms of the economy, we're on track for a long-term contraction. It is no coincidence that the crash that took place in 2008 happened the year that the first baby boomers turned 62. Right? The baby boomers began to be born in 1946. When did they turn 62? Not 2008. And what did they do in 2008? They started taking the money out of the economy because they were retired. And when they took their money out of the economy, what happened? The economy fell apart. They started taking the money out instead of putting it in. The reason everything fell apart in 2008 is because of the demographic catastrophe that we have in our country because of contraception. Third, we have a housing market glut because there's no people. Why did the bubble burst? Because there's nobody to buy the houses. If there were more people, then there wouldn't be a glut. Fourth, we have an illegal immigration crisis because we don't have enough people to do the jobs that they do. 
what do we have to do? Because we don't have enough people. We have to import people. And we haven't even changed the laws to make it so that those people are legal. We can't send them away. We have 11 million illegal immigrants in this country. That's an estimate, obviously. But if we sent them all home, we'd have an even worse economy. We can't send them home. We need them because we haven't bothered to have children. And of course, we're looking down, fifth, look, looking down the road at insolvency of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid because there simply aren't workers to sustain it. When it was uh, created, for every beneficiary, there were 10 workers. And we're looking now, in the very near future, for every beneficiary, there will be only three workers. The workers that we do have are undisciplined and unreliable because they come out of total social dysfunction. In Scranton, there's a company that a number of my parishioners have worked for. And if you show up at that company for five days in a row, and these are for full-time workers, if you can manage to show up and work for five days in a row for your whole shift, they will give you a 50 cent per hour bonus. <laughs> they don't have to give it out very often. Seventh, the three largest branches of the military regularly fail to meet their recruiting goals. And so we see it has to do with the defense of the nation we love as well. If we note that no nation's economy has ever expanded while its population contracted, we begin to understand the alarm of the Anglican bishops at Lambeth in 1908. And indeed, if you looked at the census that was just completed in 2010, we had the lowest population growth since the Great Depression. The lowest population, rate of population growth from 2000 to 2010 since the Great Depression. And that was eight years of prosperity. 2000 to 2008, we were going gangbusters. We had all kinds of money. In fact, I remember just a few years ago getting a check from President Bush, right? He gave us money. He said, I don't, I, I, we don't need it. Here's some money. Remember how at Lambeth 1908, the Anglican bishops of the world described contraception as hostile to the national welfare. A hundred years ago, 103 years ago, they could see developing the predicament that we are now in, in the United States and in the other countries of the West. In embracing contraception, we've embraced death. But for the faithful, there is a silver lining. For the faithful, there is a silver lining. And call this part fidelity's reward. The reward of the church for remaining steadfast to the constant teaching of the church fathers, that contraception is an intrinsic evil. The reward of saying this over and over and over again for 2,000 years, the reward is big families, and thus a big evangelical witness. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, about the evangelical witness of big families. I'm going to talk about this at length tomorrow. Today's the downer, okay? Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow you're going to leave feeling really good. So it's an incentive, it's an incentive to come back, all right? The good news in all of this that I've described tonight is that while it may not appear to be so yet, the Catholic Church has won the culture war. The Catholic Church 
has won the culture war. You say, you're just, Father, you're out of your mind. They just passed gay marriage up in New York. I'm not. And I have seven children to show for it. Since the secularists, the atheists, and the mainline Protestants have, by virtue of other pursuits, forgotten or refused to have children, their influence over the affairs of a representative democracy will wane over time. And it's going to wane really fast because they're either having no children or one child. Our nation will eventually recover or it will cease to be a representative democracy. Secularists, you know, are known to use undemocratic means to maintain power. But I don't think that will happen here. Assuming that the Constitution remains, the Constitution, the 1787 one, right? Assuming the Constitution remains, the place of the secularists and the atheists their place at the table will be taken by the descendants of those who do not ascribe to the theology of androgyny, the children of men and women who had large families because they embraced the roles that God had given them and chose to live lives of complementarity and not competition. What is the rate of divorce for those couples who do not contracept and who use only natural family planning? Anybody know? Less than 1% less than 1%. The rate of divorce among those who do not contracept is less than 1%. When contraception and abortion were first outlawed in the aftermath of the Civil War, the legislation was passed and signed into law by Protestants, both in the legislative and the executive branches of our state governments and federal government. The Comstock Laws, have you heard of them? right? Contraception was not allowed, and information about contraception was not allowed to be sent across state lines from 1873 to 1965. And those laws were passed by Protestants. Those Protestants understood then all that I have described to you tonight, because this is simply the logic of the natural law and the moral law. And the natural law and the moral law are accessible to man by virtue of the faculty of his reason. What I have described to you tonight is accessible without any education in theology. The ideology of the contraceptive mentality has so clouded the judgment of the enemies of the Catholic Church that they are literally committing demographic suicide. The enemies of the Catholic Church in refusing to have children are committing demographic suicide. So when abortion and her demonic sister contraception are finally outlawed again, a generation or two from now, it will be a work undertaken by legislatures made up in large part by Catholic Christians, the people of the 21st century who still embrace the gift of life and love. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father. As usual, we will be taking a short break. Okay, our usual rules of play. Make sure your question is one sentence long. If you have to take a breath, 
or if you would otherwise have to put a comma in your sentence, it's too long. Uh, the next rule is for you, Father. Make sure your answers are also short and to the point. Um, and, uh, Not like my talk. <laughs> make sure your question has to do with the subject at hand, and make sure your sentence has a question mark on the end. And finally, please do not take my microphone away from me. It's mine. Okay. Father, do you see Pope John Paul's theology of the body speaking to many of the ills that you address this evening? If so, why isn't it taught more widely? You're absolutely correct that the theology of the body is actually what converted me to Catholicism. I went to a theology of the body conference in 2002 in Charleston. And I had already begun to read Gospel of Life, uh, which is Evangelium Vitae, it's a Latin title. And I'd also read The Splendor of Truth, Veritatis Splendor. And these had sort of put me in the right direction. But I uh, really made a leap when I went to a Theology of the Body Conference in, in 2002 in Charleston, South Carolina, run by the Family Honor. And so I think that I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. But 100%, uh, the Theology of the Body is what is going to see a change, will prompt a change in the way that Catholics behave in the bedroom. Because right now, Catholics in America contracept at the same rate as Protestants, secularists, and atheists. But uh, I think in the future, we're going to see the difference. You know, years ago, people used to say, uh, you have so many kids, are you Catholic? Well, it's going to happen again. Uh, and already, my wife and I get asked that all the time. And I'm, and I'm glad to say, yes, I am. Do you see the legalization of uh, polygamy and polyamory and, and, in the future? Uh, yes, indeed. We haven't hit rock bottom. The uh, legalization of gay marriage in New York was significant because it was the first time a legislature did it. And really, if sex is all about self-gratification and, and having accepted the fact that two people of the same sex can be called a marriage, we don't have any legal basis and any logical basis to prevent people entering into unions that aren't uh, marriage either. So indeed, I think that we may see that. But the fruit of every one of these advances, which the secularists like to think are advances uh, in the cause of human freedom, the fruit of every single one of them is going to be more and more social disintegration, more and more social dysfunction. And so at some point, people are going to say, this has got to stop, we want a solution. And the Catholic Church, of course, will be there to say, here's a solution. And by that time, we'll have a lot more Catholic voters because of the, the big families in, in the Catholic Church. With the liberal media of today, what was the media in 1930 when the conference made its summary to the people? The uh, Washington Post condemned it. The Washington Post, you look up the, uh, the conference happened in September of 1930. If you look at the, editorials, the editorial page from the Washington Post, September 1930, you'll find the condemnation. My girlfriend said something to me when you said that Catholics would be responsible for voting because they're all pro-life. My girlfriend said, what about Islam? Indeed. You might know Father Charles Connor from EWTN, if you watch that at all. He was our mentor. He was actually the man who catechized me while he was catechizing me 
and uh, the group of Anglicans who came into the church with me uh, in 2005, Father Charles Connor said, the only people observing Humana Vitae today are the Muslims. That was facetious. He was making a joke because <laughs> the Islamic view of woman is totally not consonant with Humana Vitae. But the joke he was making is that the birth rate in Muslim countries is generally higher than that in countries that have been historically Christian. And so uh, our Muslim immigrants, for the most part, are very much against abortion. However, the demographic decline that we've witnessed in the West is happening in the Muslim world as well. If you look at the fertility rates in places like Egypt and Iran, in the last generation it has plummeted. The only country where they aren't really contracepting much anymore, seven to eight children born per woman, you know that, that country? Afghanistan. Every other place, it's gone down the toilet. And so we will have allies in the Muslim community here to help us uh, eventually pass this legislation to outlaw abortion. It'll come. Thank you very much, Father. Could you give us the details on the Mass tomorrow evening again? Yes, there is an Anglican use of the Roman Rite. It is the only variation of the Roman Rite permitted in the United States. So variations of the Roman Rite are like the Ambrosian Rite, right? From Milan, the Mozarabic from Spain. Those aren't allowed to be celebrated in the United States. The only variation of the Roman Rite permitted to be celebrated in the United States is the Anglican use of the Roman Rite. It is a valid Catholic Mass approved by the Holy Father himself and permitted in this diocese tomorrow by Bishop Laverde. And we will say it at Holy Spirit Church in Annandale at 5 o'clock. I will celebrate the Anglican Use Mass for the first time in the state of Virginia. By the way, Father is also going to be joining us during Lent of 2012 to celebrate Evensong or Vespers according to the Anglican Use. Um, he will also be coming to deliver a lecture for us on defending priestly celibacy understanding the modern-day vocations crisis in its proper context. So we'll be very uh, much looking forward to that talk. Thank you all for coming this evening, and we'll conclude with a blessing from Father Bergman. The Lord be with you. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you forever. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.